0: I'm Adam Strauss. And I'm Jordan Eiper, MD. And this is not therapy. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much therapy.
1: It's not therapy, man. Yeah, but I mean, it sort of is therapy at least I hope it's therapy. I mean, because I frankly need therapy right now. I'm in the midst of an OCD crisis. This is Adam, by the way. I'm Jordan. I'm a
0: therapist and a psychiatrist. But let's be clear, Adam, I'm not your therapist or psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> Nor am I the doctor for anyone listening to this. Unless, of course, a patient of mine is listening to this. In which case, let's just talk about it on Monday.
1: That's right. Get your bill of hours in Jordan. That's how you guys operate. But yes, you are not my therapist. You're my friend and close friend, a very close friend. And we actually haven't known each other for that long. We met, what, it was 2017. We yeah. we were both, we, we went to the same ayahuasca retreat center in Peru, a place called Niue Rao. We were there at different times, but then subsequently one of the founders, Joe Tuffer, introduced us and I think one reason we've gotten so close is we have a lot of shared interests, some might say obsessions, and we enjoy discussing them. We've talked a lot about sex, love, relationships, spirituality, psychedelics, of course. But also, to be fair, some of our conversations do have a a sort of quasi-therapeutic aspect to them. And I certainly have a lot of experience with therapy as a, a consumer of it. Most recently, for years, I did a form of therapy called ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, which is focused largely on really tuning in to your present moment experience, the sensations in your body, the thoughts in your head, learning to allow them to be there and, and work with them. You, though, to be fair, you have a, a bit of a different therapeutic orientation, right?
0: Slightly different. I mean, I, I've i not been trained in nor do I focus on ACT. All of the things you said that to describe ACT, I would say I I am a fan of and I try to incorporate into my approach. But I I would say my the mainstay of my approach as a therapist is something called psychoanalytic psychotherapy, which it really is a therapy oriented toward a depth approach to the psyche studying the unconscious understanding how early childhood experiences shaped how we now view the world and how the thoughts in our head influence us and make us feel so yeah we'll we'll do some of the stuff that you did in act but we're also going to talk a lot about your mom
1: And your mom, to be fair, because the idea that we've discussed for this whole podcast is we're definitely going to blur that uh, traditionally uh, hard line between the the patient and the doctor, the client and the therapist. Yeah. And, and we've been talking about doing a podcast like this for a while, but what inspired us to hit record now was we were talking on the phone like a half hour ago and yeah, I was looking for your advice and perspective on this current OCD episode I am grappling with and like a good caring friend and a good psychiatrist, you're like, you know, let's, let's try to monetize this conversation. (laughs) Let's, uh, let's let's turn this into a podcast. And and I'm happy to do so because I think the issues that I struggle with and some of the issues that you grapple with are, are, are not unique to us. But let me start with my specific issue right now. And really I should start with my story, for those who aren't familiar. So I'm a comedian, stand-up comedy, I write. I also do theatrical monologues, and one of those monologues is called The Mushroom Cure. And it's the true story of how I tried to treat my, at that time, extremely debilitating, obsessive-compulsive disorder with psychedelics. And when people hear this, they always ask me, they're like, well, did it work? And I always tell them, you know, just buy tickets, all right? (laughs) And then they're always like, but i'm your mother i'm just concerned about you so so i'm the one who actually brought up mothers first <laughs> but just a little <laughs> little sampling of my stand up work there but the truth is psychedelics were and are massively helpful the ocd is much much less of a factor in my life than it was years ago but it still can flare up and this is one of those times For me, the OCD manifests primarily around decision-making. When I'm having OCD about a decision, I'll often exhaustively research the different options. I will obsess about the specific pros and cons of every possible choice I could make. And the more this goes on, the more anxious I get because I'm aware that there is no perfect choice. The more I obsess, the more I'm aware of the drawbacks of whatever I choose. And with OCD, you want perfection. So I'll finally decide I'm going to go with option A. And sometimes when I make that decision, there's a little bit of relief, but if I've obsessed a long time leading up to it, that relief is not going to last. Before I actually execute the decision, before I pull the trigger I'll start to feel, well, wait a second. No, I think option B is the better choice. I didn't weight all the variables properly. And I'll feel more and more anxious because I'm about to choose option A, but I know option B is better, so I'll switch my choice. And I may feel a little bit of relief then, but again, it doesn't last. I'll start to feel like, no, I had it right the first time. I should go with option A, and I can ping pong back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And when the OCD was really bad, which it was for many, many years, I would have this about every decision, no matter how trivial, what shirt to wear, what side of the street to walk down, literally what bagel to order for breakfast. But now the OCD, it really only rears its head with quote unquote big decisions, especially decisions that I don't encounter a lot. I don't have a lot of practice with. And the specific decision I'm grappling with now is, well, I'm, I'm based in New York most of the time and I was in New York, but I was scheduled to come out to San Francisco in mid-March to do a run of the Mushroom Cure and premiere a new solo show here. I was going to be in San Francisco for, for a few months and I was very excited. One, I love the San Francisco Bay area. Love the nature out here. Two, I love the theater I was going to be performing at. It's called the Marsh. It's a great, great, uh, great venue, great operation. And three, I was excited because I've relatively recently started seeing a woman who lives in San Francisco and we'd done the long distance thing for a couple of months. She's visited me. It was going great. And we were extremely excited to actually be in the same city for an extended period of time. And then coronavirus happened. And a few days before I was scheduled to fly out to San Francisco, I got word that the show was canceled. So, Really, the only reason I would come out at that point would be for this woman. Her name is Clara. And specifically, as it looked more and more likely that there was going to be a lockdown, which indeed there now is in San Francisco in the, in the Bay Area, really, the question was, should I come out to quarantine with Clara? And that, in of itself was a fairly big decision. We don't know each other that well, but I'm not going to get into that now. We did make the decision. We had a few frank conversations, and we decided that, yeah. We want to be together. This is an odd situation, but let's make the best of it. So I flew out and we did. We were together, but only for a few days. After five days, she decided to leave and to go be with her parents in the LA area. And we're going to talk about this in detail, I think, on the next episode because there's a lot to process there and I still have to decide what my next move is with that relationship. It's certainly not clear to me right now. But one thing that is clear to me is that this has left me with a decision. Should I stay or should I go? I can stay here in the Bay Area. I'm out here now. I actually have a lovely house I can stay in rent-free thanks to my extremely generous cousin. But if I stay here, I will be utterly and completely alone. I will be quarantined alone here. So the other option is I could go to my parents' place in Massachusetts. And I love my parents. We get along very well now. It was a very contentious relationship, particularly with my mother, Jordan. So you'll have fun with that in the future. But we get along really well now. And it's not just my parents. My parents live in a two-family house with my sister, my brother-in-law, and my three nephews and nieces, who I'm just wildly in love with. And it's mutual. we We really all enjoy each other's company. So I could go back there and I should be clear, if I did go back there, I would, upon landing in Boston, I would immediately quarantine alone for 14 days, probably get an Airbnb or a friend may have a place I can stay alone uh, before I see my parents and, and the rest of my family. But then after that, I would be surrounded by people I love in a comfortable place and that's very appealing. But on the other hand, I'm here now. I'm in the San Francisco area. I'm in Oakland. And it doesn't seem like an ideal thing, an ideal time to be moving. Things have changed drastically in the last week. And it looks like they'll change even more drastically. So if I am going to move, clearly now is the time. And what makes this decision so difficult is there's just so much uncertainty right now. I mean, we don't know what's going on with this virus. We certainly don't have any clue how this is going to play out. And I think the common denominator with OCD is this real aversion to uncertainty. The the fundamental condition of life is that we're always in uncertainty. We never really know what's going on, but it's easy to forget that when your life seems to unfold day by day in a fairly predictable routine. You might not be able to predict specific events, but most people, you know, okay, you know, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to see these people. I'm going to eat these meals. I'm going to engage in these activities. It seems like we have a lot of agency over our lives generally. Uh, and of course, the assumption is, I'm assuming, you know, you're a, a fairly comfortable, somewhat privileged person, you know, in a, in a stable society. And therefore, it's very easy to forget that we're, we're really not in control and we really don't know what's going to happen. And there actually is profound uncertainty in every moment. But what this whole COVID climate is showing us, we're all in a moment of, I think, unprecedented collective and individual uncertainty. And so OCD, I want to eliminate uncertainty with OCD. I want absolute assurance that I'm making the best decision. The same way someone wants absolute assurance, their hands are perfectly cleaner. They want absolute assurance the stove is definitely, definitely, definitely off. And of course, you can't get absolute assurance, which is why people with OCD get trapped in these spirals of trying to seek assurance and you get a little bit of it, but then it fades and you try to get more. But now we're seeing everyone is acutely aware of the fact that they have no clue what's going on right now and they have no clue how things are going to unfold. I mean, at this moment, some people are saying we may be on lockdown for a year and a half until a vaccine is developed. If a vaccine is developed, there's no absolute guarantees there. Other people are saying, yeah, you know, five weeks, six weeks, and we should be able to at least start to get back to normal. But the point is, no one knows how long this is going to last. That's one big source of uncertainty, which is bearing on me as I make this decision. Also, there's a lot of unknowns about the virus itself. I have no symptoms, but clearly it seems like a large portion of people are asymptomatic carriers. So, so that's, you know, I don't know whether I am currently infected. There's no way I can know without getting a test. And it doesn't seem like there's any prospect for healthy asymptomatic people to get tests in the very near future. There's also a lot of unknowns about how it's transmitted. We know that certainly surfaces direct, you know, coughing on people. It seems like aerial transmission is a route. It's not clear how uh, common that is, so all these unknowns that that I'm having to make this decision in the absence of. but yeah, and I guess the biggest unknown is just how long this is going to last. So, yeah, I, I think in some way, this whole crisis is giving maybe a, quote unquote "normal people an insight into what it's like to live with OCD, to live with this real fear of uncertainty and this an aware, awareness of uncertainty. And that's a lot of what I'm grappling with right now. The OCD generally is a lot better, but this is extraordinarily fertile soil for my OCD to take root. And I would say probably most people with OCD for for it to take root.
0: It's interesting because I feel like in my mind, very similar processes are happening, but also the opposite is happening with my own admittedly totally obsessive tendencies. And for me, it shows up a lot in needing to have needing to have all my plans in order and know exactly what I'm gonna do. And this weekend is planned out and then I'm gonna go there and it's then I'm gonna see those people and this summer I'm gonna do this and and that was actually I was having in the past months a lot of Yeah, perseverative thinking, I would say, obsessive thinking about what I was going to do in July and August uh, when I finish residency and have a chunk of free time. And I was trying to get the perfect plans laid out. And it's been interesting to watch what's happening in my mind with coronavirus because I've actually experienced it as deeply relieving to have all of my plans just totally laid to waste Cause I think th- what troubles me is feeling like I need to make a decision when, when I can, like if there's a decision to be made, it has to be the perfect decision. I have to optimize. hundred
1: percent. Yeah. I, I relate to that opt- completely.
0: Like optimization obsession a lot. If I'm going to like, it has to be the perfect thing. And having that completely taken away from me, I find really relieving Cause there's, there's I, not up. there's nothing I can do.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was saying this to you, I think yesterday on the phone where it was like, I, I almost wish I started coming down with symptoms right now. That sounds crazy. But if I came down with symptoms, then the decision would be off the table. Clearly I w- wouldn't be able to go anywhere. And I found this, this thinking has happened to me before in other contexts where I'm contemplating two You know, it's, it does sound, my OCD does strike even me as such a luxury problem because I certainly don't have indecision when one alternative is clearly terrible. Like I I don't, I don't go into OCD indecision when I'm deciding, well, should I, you know, should I do a run of my show in LA or should I get
0: a tattoo on my
1: face? Right. Should I get a face tattoo? Well, those wouldn't be mutually exclusive. But right. Should, should I get a Should I get a uh, face tattoo? And I don't know. Go down to you know. Be, I don't know. Be, start Start poaching illegal minks. I don't know where that's coming from. I'm sure that's something to do with my mother, though. You could illuminate. <laughs> she did not wear fur coats. She does not wear fur coats. But anyway. But yeah, the OCD comes up often where there's two enticing attractive opportunities. yeah. And in fact, right now, the the options I'm considering, I'm damn lucky. I mean, one is stay in a very nice, comfortable house, rent-free in Oakland. The other is visit my family, who I I really love. And so even though clearly getting the coronavirus is a wildly um, suboptimal outcome, part of me would feel relief because it would be like, all right, the decision is off the table. And I've found that before where it's like, oh, I have the opportunity to do my show, say to do a tour on the West coast or do some shows in, you know, do a little run in New York. They're both wonderful opportunities. And there have been times where I'm like, oh, you know, I hope maybe one of these opportunities is just going to evaporate. So, so yeah, I, I very much relate. And in fact, I'm envious of how you feel. You had all these incredible plans options, but you were having trouble deciding what to pull the trigger on. And now by any, anyone's sort of, you know, sane standard, they would say <laughs> being tra- being home sheltered during an, a pandemic is a lot less optimal than traveling the world or going to Peru or all these other exciting things you were considering. But the very fact that the option is off the table is giving you comfort.
0: Yeah, totally. I was going to go to Peru and I was going to drink Ayahuasca for a few weeks or a few months to fix myself, to like fix something that feels broken inside. And this deep relief that comes from realizing, from having that all taken off the table and being forced to make do with what I have. I can't tell you, I've never felt more abundance in my life than I do (laughs) right now, being stuck inside of an apartment in the middle of a city during a pandemic. I'm like, oh, I've got books I've been meaning to read forever. I've got people to talk to on the phone. I've still got a park to walk in and having, having my options bounded and constrained by this thing, it feels comforting. Like I'm an infant getting swaddled almost like Mm. the world has put a blanket around me. That's, you know, that's not to say I'm totally stressed. I'm, worried about my patients. I'm worried about places that I might have to work in the hospital that are that increase my exposure risk, potentially, therefore increasing the exposure risk to my housemates. I'm worried about my parents' health. But in general, I'm really relieved by the by, yeah, by the way in which my worldview is swaddled in a blanket by coronavirus right now. and i'm I'm kind of forced to just pay attention to what's in front of me and what's important. But with you, I feel like you do this thing in your life where you, you create yourself a life where you have so many more options than most people have. And that creates, it's really interesting because that also creates misery for yourself. Like how many people in the country right now are struggling with which, which really nice environment in a nice place do I want to be in? Yeah, most people are just yeah. like, oh shit! This is where I live. This is where I am right now. But you, Adam Strauss, managed to create for yourself <laughs> painful decisions.
1: Yes, and it, you know, and it really extends through my whole life because I, I, I was able to, lucky enough to be able to give up my last day job, uh, full time, was actually almost seven years ago. But I still had to work part time until what about three years ago less than three years ago and I hated my last day job I really I mean there were there were good people there but overall I did not like it at all but it did relieve me of the obligation of making any decisions for the majority of my waking hours and now I've somehow built a life for myself where I have pretty radical freedom I can by virtue I mean even someone who's like a, a regular actor doesn't have as much freedom but doing a solo show and being a stand-up comic those are both practices where I'm doing them alone and so I effectively can choose where to go when I want to go there and and that often is where the OCD does flare up now it's probably worth mentioning this the single biggest source of OCD decision making OCD which really is the only form I I have generally is precisely the question I'm confronting now which is where should I go next should Mm -hmm. I and usually it's about performing now it's about you know potential pandemic lockdowns. But this particular decision, which is a decision that most people don't have to grapple with, but you know they don't get to grapple with it. Their, their existence is constrained by a nine to five job, family, et cetera, is one that reliably throws me into this state of very anxious indecision. And I'm in it in the moment. I mean, even as we're recording this, I'm very aware, and this is more my act, cognitive behavioral therapy orientation, but I'm very aware of a feeling that I would deem anxiety in my heart area, in the center of my chest. It's a very present physical sensation. And I'm aware of the impulses that that provokes to try to get rid of it by figuring things out, by making the decision or gathering more data. I mean, this has been, I've really been going off the deep end with, you know, coronavirus research, because this is important data to guide my decision. For example, One big question is, is there going to be a national lockdown that would mean I would not be able to fly to the East Coast? Because if there is, then I have to make the decision quickly. If there's not, well, I can kind of hang out here for a bit and see how it goes. And I've been doing so much research on that question. Yeah. a ton of research on transmission probabilities if i do quarantine at my parents house which i've decided if i do uh, go out there i'd probably quarantine not at their place initially but but really what drives these behaviors is i'm looking for an answer and in turn what's driving that is trying to find some relief trying to find a way to get this anxious feeling to go away to get and uh, to bring it back to more stereotypical ocd i imagine that's the same feeling someone with contamination fear feels when they wash their hands or someone with the stove checking feels when, yeah, the stove is definitely off. They're getting a feeling of relief, but of course it doesn't last. Yeah. So yeah.
0: I feel like I'm totally aware of how you would, you would like to process all these decisions and you, that it it would be very welcome for me to like help you figure out the right decision to make and i think that's a lot of logically you mean like pros and
1: cons and yeah for sure i think
0: that's a lot of people's idea a lot of people who haven't been in therapy that's probably a lot of people's ideas of what therapy is is that you go and this nice friendly person hears your problems and sort of provides an outsider perspective and helps you helps you put things into a kind of organized framework and you make a decision together. Like what should I do about my boss? Who's a total jerk. And we can certainly do that. But my inclination is to first just pause and go back and underline this, this thing that happens in your life that we're talking about where you have OCD and you have also created for yourself a life of way more freedom and decision than most people have so in that way you're like a type one diabetic who decided to open a bakery
1: sort of <laughs> I love, you have these great metaphors i love it <laughs> you
0: know that's kind, it's like it's kind simile, of amazing that was a yes <laughs> oh my God! I thought we were going to have to edit that out. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> <laughs> that, that
1: that is both my perfectionism as well as my extreme grammatical erudition. Would I say that sounds arrogant? Erudition, but Yes, I love that grammar. Was erudition. Yes, um, but sorry, go on. Yes, yeah, and
0: I just I'm just so I've you know we've talked about this so many times, but it's never really occurred to me in that way that. You create, in some ways, you create the conditions for your own misery. And what comes to mind for me when I think about that is this this psychological theory called control mastery theory, which it's sort of a transdisciplinary theory. It can be applied to whatever type of therapy you're doing, psychoanalysis, cognitive behavioral therapy, act. And it's basically a a way of understanding why people might do what they do. And... As I understand it, the theory basically holds that we probably, you know, due to childhood and and adverse things that have happened to us, are just, you know, not not like capital T trauma, but little things that were insufficient, or that there was too much of something, or not enough of something when we were little.
1: We have these you mean like love, support, safety, some just just yeah, like not enough, like material things, or well, I guess yeah, it exactly. could be material yeah, 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 too. Yeah. Yeah. Love. Yeah. So
0: like not enough, not enough love, support, safety that then in our lives, we find a way subconsciously. It's, it's very eerie. We find our way into these situations where the conditions that happened in the past and were damaging to us are showing up again in our adult lives. And the, the reason it's, it's, you know, Freud called it the repetition compulsion and control mastery theory states that this repetition compulsion is happening subconsciously because there's a part of us that wants to go into the same situation again and have a new outcome, get mastery over it. And I really like the theory because I think it's a very charitable way of looking at Patterns that people have that are often very self-sabotaging. So, you know, the classic example would be someone who had an abusive alcoholic parent and then finds themselves in a string of relationships over and over and over with abusive alcoholics. And to to the rational outsider, it's like, why on earth would you be doing that? And if you take a control mastery theory perspective, it makes me think about that person like, oh, you're trying, if there's a part of you that wants to go into that situation again so that you can change it and so it can be different this time and so that you can save your parent or so that, yeah, so that whatever the whatever the needed outcome is can finally come about for you. And I just I just wonder about that with this
1: um,
0: with the way that you live your life, if 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 that theory could offer us any any useful insights.
1: So the idea being, I, I've never heard this before and I like it a lot. I mean, I guess I've heard the concept in sort of in, in lay terms that in some way I'm creating, well, I've created this life and creating these opportunities for me to get trapped in these decision-making, you know, spirals because I'm trying to in some way reenact something from childhood and fix it or change it. Yeah. It's interesting, but what would, so, all right, I'm going to throw something out there, which maybe this won't meet up with what you're saying, but maybe it will. It's occurred to me that there is a, there's clearly a payoff. I think a lot of, a lot of, even people who work with OCD patients sometimes don't realize how big the payoff is. You know, I talk to a lot of people with OCD and you talk to the hand washers and yeah, when they, feel like their hands are perfectly clean, there is, if not a palpable high, there is a clear feeling of relief, which I think in and of itself is a sort of high. Stove checkers, yep, the stove is definitely off. It took me nine hours to get here, but it's definitely off and I feel fucking good, or at least I feel safe mm-hmm. for a little bit. And then, wait, 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 maybe I jostled the stove and I walked away from it. Maybe uh, the knob itself isn't properly calibrated and the anxiety comes back in, but, the, but there is that payoff. And for me, clearly, so yeah, for me, With the OCD, there is definitely a high when I feel like I've optimized, when I feel like I've made the right decision, I've lined everything up well, it feels really good. The problem is... It, uh that high doesn't last. And as it fades, I'll feel more anxiety. And then there's a compulsion essentially to redose. So if I chose to say, do a run of my show in San Francisco instead of LA, and that feels good for a little bit, then as that fades and I start feeling anxious, I'm looking to get high again effectively. I'm like, oh, well, let me switch to LA. Maybe that'll feel good. Of course, I'm not conscious of this, but that is the way I sort of conceptualize it. So the point being that in the short term, in the very short term, OCD offers the promise of some sort of relief or high. By the way, I should say it doesn't always work. People with hand washing, they don't always get that relief. The stove checkers don't always get that relief, and I often don't get that relief when I make a decision. But the insidious thing is if I don't get the relief, that's all the more reason to try, again, to go deeper into the ritual, the reversing decisions, or the washing the hands because, oh, you didn't get what you were looking for this time. Well, if you do it again, maybe you will get what you're looking for. So very short term, there is some sort of relief or the promise of relief And then, as I mentioned, I think at the very beginning, you know, midterm, term, your life just gets worse and worse because you're trapped in this cycle. So that's one level at which OCD operates in the context of sort of payoffs. But I sometimes wonder if there's a deeper level there, which is that I'm effectively creating situations for myself that can cause great anxiety and suffering, but they also give me the opportunity to get these little ephemeral highs. Mm -hmm. And so in a sense, another way I've looked at it in the past is, you know, yes, there's great suffering with OCD, but there's also the illusion that in some sense I'm choosing that suffering by getting trapped in these cycles and the illusion or the promise that I can relieve that suffering. I basically it's kind of gives me agency or the illusion of agency over my own suffering and over relief of that suffering, whereas just living life you know, you, you, there's all sorts of disappointments and frustrations where we clearly can't control them. Uh, Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. I mean, when we talk about trying to avoid the inevitable disappointments and frustrations of life, you know, the first one that comes to
1: mind, the the biggie is death, right? (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, I've heard that's a bummer. I mean, anecdotal, anecdotal reports, no, no, no firsthand accounts that I've read, but the only firsthand accounts that I've read are actually quite positive. You know, no right. The back. near death experience ones. Yeah. People come
0: back from the, I, I guess you hear the occasional one where someone comes back and they're like, it was horrible, just black nothingness. But, you know, often it's like, it sounded pretty great. Yeah. But, Yeah. I mean, you know, Buddhism and and just mindfulness and spiritual traditions come to mind when we talk about how, like, how do we confront, how do we confront the inevitable suffering of life? And I know that's definitely, yeah, meditation and and Buddhist dharma has definitely been a part of your life and your healing path, I think.
1: It it has, I would say more meditation than the sort of the, than the Dharma, though that that is that is something I've I've studied to some extent, but yeah, and ter- just to elaborate slightly on this idea, I I read once uh, a, a heroin addict was talking about, is addict a politically correct term now? I don't know, uh, substance abuse or substance use disorder. I'm only being half facetious here. But I'll use the term addict because I use that term for myself with, with OCD, that I get addicted to certainty and, and relief. But they, I read something where they said, you know, the great virtue of heroin is that it simplifies your life. And I, I'm paraphrasing, but the idea being that when you're addicted to a substance like heroin, All you really have to worry about is, do I have heroin? And if not, how am I going to get more heroin? You don't have to worry about the fact that you have a strained relationship with your mother, that you're not sure how you're going to pay rent. I mean, all those are worries. But really, the primary thing, your life is distilled down to just this one thing, which is making sure you can get high. And, and there's an attraction there. I get it, you know, because when I'm deep in the OCD about a decision, nothing else matters. All that matters is making the right decision so I can feel safe and good. And again, bringing it back to the present moment, I'm, I'm not totally in that place right now, but I'm certainly getting there where it's like, yeah, I, I have to make this decision. And uh, in fact, the way this particular podcast recording came about is you and I were going to record about this whole relationship, my, my Corona wife or Corona ex-wife. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and, uh, and we are going to do that today, but we were speaking on the phone and I was like, you know, I'm just so anxious about this impending decision about where to go that I don't think I'll be able to really think about anything else. And you said, well, why don't we record about that decision? So yeah, I relate to the the model of addiction very much where, you know, when I'm in this state, I'm very, very selfish. I'm very monomaniacal. All I care about is making the right decision to the point, as I said earlier, if I suddenly started coughing and developing a fever, yes, I'd be concerned and all this other stuff, but there would absolutely be an element of relief, not dissimilar to the relief you felt when all of your summer plans were off the table, which is okay. I may have a potentially fatal illness, but at least I don't have to make this decision because in this moment, making the decision is the thing I'm most afraid of to be totally open. I am scared. I am in a state of fear about making a decision, which is ultimately, it's funny, whenever I'm in this point, I always say, hey, it's not life or death. (laughs) The irony is that this could be life or death, right? I mean, let's, and that is not my concern. I'm not terribly concerned about you know, but there is uh, some risk. Clearly, I'm more at risk of catching something if I fly across the country. And for that matter, if I am carrying asymptomatically, I'm obviously more at risk of transmitting to someone else. So there are potential life or death implications. But yeah, in my mind, it's more just about those aren't entering in heavily in in the decision, I guess, because I feel like those aren't major risks either way, though, maybe I'm deluding myself there. I mean, the, the fact is, right. we don't know what the risks are.
0: Right. Well, I think it's an interesting question of how much of this is about the fear. How, how much are you feeling the fear of the virus? Because another thing that I think about obsessive thinking is that it, it's often a displacement from the thing that's really troubling us, right? You have a thorn in your foot, But you're worrying about your calendar for next month because you're not really aware of the thorn that's sticking in your foot. And I I definitely noticed that in myself Mm -hmm. that sometimes I'm obsessing about a decision. And really, it's a mechanism to distract me from some other thing that's more painful and often some sadness that I need to process like I need to. I need to get into some scary, painful emotion and have a good cry. And then once I do that, I realize, oh, that decision I was obsessing over is not such a big deal. Or or the path forward becomes clear once I sort of pull this thorn out of my foot, release this blockage of emotion. So I do wonder with you if that could be going on. Is there a way in which you, like, very understandably are absorbing the anxiety that's floating around in the culture about this are you having any of your own health anxiety and that that anxiety is being displaced and shunted through this very well worn path in your mind of obsessing over a decision you know that said that said i don't want to minimize the extent to which you do struggle with decision making because i totally believe you and i totally un- i totally get what you mean when you say it's in a way less scary to think about getting the coronavirus and getting sick than it is for you to make this decision. Cause I, yeah, I really believe you. And I have, I have a lot of empathy for how, for how totally overwhelming and terrifying making seemingly inconsequential decisions can be for you.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think the answer is yes to what you said on all fronts. So let me address that at a few levels. First of all, I was not born with OCD. I had a lot of anxiety and perfectionism and obsessive thinking from probably, you know, my my earliest memories, but the OCD, by which I mean the specific behavior of making and reversing and obsessing over decisions, did not develop until I had a particularly significant romantic relationship and 17 years ago, the love of my life in the common parlance, I I had sort of this profound heartbreak and in the In the aftermath of that, that is when the OCD started. It it sometimes sounds unbelievable to people that this would be the case, but I know this is true because reliably the most difficult decisions for me now are about moving to a new apartment you know, an anxiety provoking decision for anyone. But I moved before I had the OCD, I moved apartments frequently. Like every six or eight months, I would move to a new apartment because I like getting places I couldn't ordinarily a- afford. So I'd get these short-term sublets. This was obviously pre-Airbnb. And so the short-term sublet market was not easily visible and liquid. So you could get these great deals if you're willing to put up with the hassle of moving frequently. And that's what I would do. And I never once agonized over where to move. Not once. Even broader, more broadly speaking, I didn't have any indecision about where I should move after college. I knew I wanted to go to New York. I just made decisions and relationships. I had no indecision about committing to a woman, which has been a big one for me since I developed the OCD. So certainly what you just uh, posited is absolutely sort of the origin story of my OCD. There was a deep sadness. I was unwilling, or I would say unable. I didn't have the tools to feel it. I mean, I'd been in therapy for years and therapists would often say, what are you feeling? But when they said that, I would go into my head and think about like, what am I feeling? Oh, I'm feeling angry. No one ever directed me to actually turn into my direct physical experience, which is where Mm -hmm. emotions live. What is going on in my body, in my heart, not metaphorically my heart, but that area of my chest. And psychedelics were absolutely invaluable in that regard. It was first on psychedelics that is able to Directly access my emotions at a physical level and start to process them. Mm -hmm. But yes, the OCD developed, I believe, because I was not willing to feel the sadness and loss over this heartbreak 17 years ago. That's the first level. Related to that, there is a sadness now. We'll talk about Clara in our next episode. But yes, uh, that relationship is up in the air. I don't want to get too much into it, but certainly I am. I, I'm sure I am feeling loss around that, even though it's not necessarily over. It's not playing out the way I had thought and hoped it would. I'm probably feeling deep loss. I mean, that was a yeah. very significant connection, and I'm not thinking about that loss. You know, so maybe that's part of the yeah. reason this is happening. It's serving. The, I have not thought. Uh, maybe I've, it's passed my across my mind a few times, but I've I've spent very little time thinking about Clara and thinking about that relationship. Today, and I've spent a great deal of time thinking about should I stay here or should I go to the East Coast? So, it certainly does, whether it's the purpose of it or not, it does serve the function of distracting me from that deeper loss. Mm -hmm. And it gives me an idea of agency, right? Because I can make a decision here. I have the power to make this decision. I don't have the power to just decide to make that feeling of loss and sadness around Clara go away. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah. I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying where, oh yeah, you talked about the collective anxiety. I think that is part of this too. I think, yeah, Yeah, of course there is a baseline level of, you know, for all of my struggle with OCD, things have gotten a lot better. And I would say my baseline state is one of general contentment and often feeling pretty good and pretty safe in the world and lucky and privileged Mm. and that is not the case now i think the baseline state for most people is one of fear whether it's fear of the virus itself which i'm at least not consciously aware of having much fear around or fear of the de- the radical uncertainty that that introduces are we going to be cooped up for 18 months how is society going to function with you know complete economic devastation is there going to be civil unrest so those sorts of fears i am conscious of and i think those i those are certainly contributing and The thing about OCD, it's an attempt to alleviate fear that creates more fear. And what that means is when I experience fear or anxiety, I use those interchangeably for any reason, even if it's for a real reason, the OCD is more likely to flourish as sort of my addictive strategy slash coping mechanism for getting rid of fear. So if there's a real life issue that's causing fear, let's say a, a health anxiety for a parent or something like that. That will probably produce more OCD as my brain attempts to you know go down this path that offers at least very temporary relief. So yeah, I, I agree completely with with what you're saying there,
0: yeah. when you're talking about how your OCD symptoms developed right after this breakup, I'd forgotten about that. We've talked about that in the past. And you know it further bolsters the assumption that this these symptoms, this experience of trying to desperately control situations and make decisions in the face of fear and anxiety, there's meaning to that. The conventional sort of psychiatric approach to OCD would just be like, it doesn't matter what you're worried about. Something is wrong with your brain. There's faulty wiring. It started after some stressor as psychiatric disorders often do, but the narrative around it is meaningless. That would be sort of the conventional approach. And I think we both agree that that's nonsense, that the fact that a heartbreak, the rejection by a woman was the precipitating event in you first developing this pattern of protecting yourself is that that's deeply meaningful and that that needs to be looked at.
1: Absolutely. and I, and I think this is actually a newer realization for me, and I credit you uh, for helping me see that, where, yes, it's absolutely. It's not, I think, the way to understanding and gaining freedom from this increasing freedom, because I have gained a lot of freedom, I think, is different than if, let's say I developed this OCD pattern as a result of the loss of a parent or a car accident, or, yeah. I I think absolutely, there's a lot of meaning there.
0: Yeah, the other thing you said that I want to highlight is how you were in therapy for a long time and you sort of knew your story intellectually. You had talked about it, but then with psychedelics, you were able to almost go through, I'm paraphrasing and let me know if I'm wrong, but I'm hearing you say that you were able to, Kind of go back through material material you'd already known intellectually or talked through in therapy, but you were able to feel it in your body. You were able to feel it connected to really powerful emotional states, and that's when things started to shift. Sort of. Think, yes. Sort of.
1: I, I so yeah what I and I I think that's often like if you look at what MAPS is reporting with their MDM multidisciplinary, multidisciplinary association of psychedelic studies an organization which I guess in disclosure we should say sponsors my show the mushroom cure and some of the research you're doing is some of the research you're doing now sponsored by them Jordan I'm currently
0: not involved with MAPS studies but I'm
1: you're I'm at, at a, a in center that is right
0: Yeah yeah I'm I'm yeah. I'm sort of on the edges of it yeah Yeah I've been but I've so, been trained. I've been trained in the maps MDMA therapy. Right.
1: You've people. gone through the, yeah. So yeah. you know, it seems like that what they're reporting is often people re-experience these traumatic events, but with the ability to really feel the emotions and thereby lose a lot of the fear around that. That's not quite what I experienced. What I experienced more was so I'd been exposed, especially through act acceptance and commitment therapy to the idea of acceptance of tuning into your physical experience but i wasn't actually able to do it i understood that that would that that was an important part of healing but you know understanding acceptance is not the same as actually doing it and it was actually on psychedelics that i was first able to connect to my physical experience of emotions not necessarily emotions in the context of like oh this is what i felt like when you know, when, when I, when my girlfriend left me, though it probably was a lot of the same emotions, more like, oh, in this moment, I'm feeling a lot of fear in my body. What does it feel mm-hmm. like? What are the contours of that situation, that, that emotion in my body? What are the accompanying thoughts? So that's, that, that's more how psychedelics have, yeah. have uh, impacted my yeah. healing. But I think actually it's good you're bringing this up because I think, yeah, what you're outlining is, is kind of territory that I haven't really gone too deep into. I've tried to, I've certainly, there've been ayahuasca ceremonies where I've been like, let's get back into this relationship. Let's really go there. And I haven't been able to, and maybe that reflects some deep unwillingness. Really? Yeah.
0: I really like how you're talking about it. Cause I think often the, yeah, trying to take the approach of like, I'm going to go back right now and feel the trauma that happened when my girlfriend broke up with me that that feels a little contrived to me and and this is sort of a a mainstay of psychoanalysis is that the the fruitful stuff the like the juiciest stuff to work with is what's happening right now so i would imagine that right now the the most important practice would not be like okay clearly i'm Clearly this is related to some way my mother was or, or the pain that happened when I broke up with my ex. So I'm going to sit down and try to feel that. It seems like as, as your intuition tells you, the, the important practice for you right now would just to be, to sit down and say, okay, I'm obsessing about whether or not to fly to the East coast. I'm just going to sit here and feel what that feels like in my body. And that, you know, that may well be the portal by which you access past states and memories and things like that. Mm -hmm. But like the only way in is right now, what's going on, what's going on here in this moment. That's the pay dirt.
1: Yeah. 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 And so, and uh, yes. And so that, and that is what's going on in this moment is this specific obsession that, you know, as we're talking, it's becoming more clear to me that yes, it is being driven. No doubt. I think I might be struggling with this anyway, like, let's say there wasn't a, even a pandemic. Let's say for other reasons, my show in San Francisco got canceled. I might still be struggling. Well, should I stay in San Francisco or should I go elsewhere? But I think it's heightened by probably feelings of loss that I'm again not. To- I'm wholly unaware of feeling any loss in this moment around this uh, relationship that seemed very rich and vital and is now suddenly in question. And again, we'll talk about this next next episode. But I'm sure that's probably driving it. And then, yeah, just the climate of fear, the energy, for lack of a better term, is so radically different than what I've, I've felt before. I mean, you know, we just take for granted a basic level. Again, at least if you're a relatively privileged person in Western society, you take for granted a basic level of, of physical security and material security and just routine. And all of that is crumbling right now. And so, again, my thought, consciously, I'm just thinking, what decision should I make? What is the right choice? Sure. But I'm sure all of that yeah. anxiety is driving this. And the, the cruel irony is the more baseline anxiety I have, the harder it is to make a decision because I'm looking for a feeling of safety and rightness, and I'm just not going to find it right now because there's so much it, just yeah. fear in the air and in my body. Yeah. And so I know the way out of this is to make a decision and be willing to feel the discomfort, Mm -hmm. to be willing to, once I say, yep, I'm going to go to the East Coast and I buy a plane ticket, it's probably going to feel pretty shitty. My mind is going to roar in there saying, oh, you're making a terrible decision. Why would you fly across the country in a pandemic? You could stay out here rent-free. You're fine where you are. Just why do that? And if I make the decision to stay here, my mind is going to say, why would you stay out there? There's no one, nothing for you here right now. You're going to be locked in. You're going to be totally lonely. If things get really bad, you should be closer to your parents. So yeah, you know, that, that is the way through probably is just kind of accepting that there's going to be discomfort, whatever I choose Mm -hmm. and making the choice anyway. Mm -hmm. And you know, under ordinary circumstances, I would tell myself, you know, Adam, it always turns out okay because it does turn out okay. Which again, maybe reflects my position of privilege, but there's never been a decision that I've made no matter how wrong it's felt that I've looked back on, you know, at some remove six months or a year and been like, oh yeah, that was a catastrophically bad decision. There are decisions that I could say, right. oh, you know, maybe it would have been better if I did it the other way, but it's hard to say that when your present life is good. And I have had a very good life. I mean, I get to support myself entirely by doing my art and I have complete freedom in what art I do. I mean, I'm very, very lucky. So it's hard for me to look back in my life, at least in past moments and say that was a horrible decision when things are pretty good where I'm at right now. But, but in this moment, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to take much reassurance from the fact that things have been okay in the past because we're in such uncharted waters in the actual yeah. circumstances of our existence right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a thing that you and I kind of share where we both worry a lot to varying degrees about decisions we have to make. And we don't tend to regret decisions that we made in the past, even if it didn't work out so well. Like, I, I'm i really not a regretter, which is funny given how much I worry about the future.
1: That, you see, I am a regretter, but only uh-huh. in the very short term. It's part of the cycle, I think, for me. is It's like uh-huh. when I make a decision, I'll often feel regret for yeah. an hour a day. But yes, I, I don't look back over things. Right. You know, it's part but,
0: of the it's, – it's like – or, or yeah, maybe – the hangover of the decision OCD. That you, or, or that you could potentially still undo.
1: Right, right, right. It's yeah. a way to try to keep me in the cycle. Like, oh, yeah, you made a mistake. You should go. You cancel this ticket. Stay here and right. buy the ticket. Go out there. Yeah, right. precisely. Like
0: uh, like we were talking before we got on on the line about how you have the Gmail pullback. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, in the, 30 I, seconds. Right. For 30
1: <laughs> seconds, I can cancel a send. I can cancel sending any email and you know what? I don't use it much because I do know that if I start going into that, it just, it's, it spirals. It'll be endless. I mean, one of, one of the themes of my, for lack of a better term, journey towards recovery has been increasing acceptance of imperfection and uncertainty, increasing acceptance that, yeah, maybe I could do that email better, but I'm not going to spend that time. Or yeah, maybe I could have made a slightly better decision, but I'm just going to let this one go. And even in these uniquely challenging circumstances, I do believe that is the only way forward here. I'm not going to find a decision in this moment that's going to feel totally right to me. But yet I can choose to have the willingness to make the decision with the fear and uncertainty. And I'm thinking, you know, a great way to wrap up this episode would be if I actually make a decision. But, And I guess right now I am leaning towards going to to the East Coast, but leaning towards doesn't really mean much until I actually pull the trigger and go through with it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know my position. Selfishly, selfishly in the name of creating great art, I want you to go live (laughs) in your parents' house for two months because podcast, right. (laughs) Podcast. Because that is just gonna give us endless mountains of material to mine. (laughs) Right. For sure. I mean, well, especially in these
1: times, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And, you know, that's like that's the for you. That's gonna be that's the spiritual Olympics. You know, like Ramdas said, if you want to check in on how your spiritual practice is going, go live with your family for a week. So, you know, <laughs> this is like this would be the equivalent of you of you doing like a spiritual ultra marathon. Live <laughs> with your live with your parents. <laughs> As a as a as a grown adult, go live with your parents during a pandemic for two months. See how right see a how pandemic
1: that. where I can't I can't go out. I mean, when I visit them, you know, I yeah, exactly. Oh, you know, but it's point. funny because you it is. But you said you know this is you kind of implied that this is the more challenging route. Is if I go back to them, but I'm not sure because being alone in these circumstances, I think is also is also challenging, will be challenging, inevitably. And if things get dark, being, by which I mean like real, you know, things that are even scary to say, but real social unrest, breakdown in, in order, I don't think those things are likely, but I don't think they're impossible. Uh, being separated from them is, you know, they, they do live in a two-family house with my sister and brother-in-law and nephews and nieces. If it weren't for that, I think it would be a clear-cut decision, go back you know, quarantine first, but then go back so that, you know, they have someone younger and abler bodied to, yeah. to to be there to potentially protect them and take care of their needs. But they do have that. So that's, but, but yet there still is, you know, uh, a desire to, to be there to protect them and a desire to be there to be comforted and nurtured by them. My mother can absolutely still serve that role in my life for me. And so so, yeah, was, yeah.
0: I was gonna say that was kind of missing in our conversation so far is the, you know, like the very real and understandable impulse to be closer to your parents when there is a global pandemic that is selectively harming and killing older people. It's like and, I'm feeling. I'm interestingly. I have you and I have talked about this a lot. I'm from the East Coast. I live in California. At times, I have a lot of coastal anxiety about should i live closer to
1: that i and love actually, that phrase coastal anxiety <laughs> <laughs> that's like the, the most obnoxious, yeah, coastal anxiety disorder the most obnoxious <laughs> phrase for, like, it's a great phrase job. though i mean yes it is a luxury problem but, but, but yeah many ma- i know many many people who can relate to that yeah but i'm actually the east not- coast west coast not
0: feeling much of that right now but i am talking to my parents vastly more than i usually do on the phone i'm talking to them almost every day usually i talk to them like once a week at most and so i'm also feeling that that drive to hold them close right now
1: yeah and that's you know
0: with this thing he's in his 70s that's scary
1: yeah yeah
0: super not ready for them to die
1: yeah yeah. And I think that's part of for me, but that is also why there's a small part of me that's like, because they've been doing a good job. They've been totally isolated now for 10 or 11 days. So they're in this two family house, but they have not even seen my sister, brother-in-law and nephews and nieces. What they oh, do, wow. it's pretty adorable is they have, they're in the upstairs unit you know, my sister and her family are in the downstairs unit. There's an upstairs porch. So what they'll do multiple times a day is they'll go onto the upstairs porch and my, my sister's family will stand in the front lawn and they'll have conversations, you know, from 10 feet away. Oh, that's so um, cute. It is. It's pretty adorable. I wonder
0: if you're missing out. Well, I think if that was going on with my family, I'd feel a lot of FOMO.
1: You know, I'm not super aware of that now, but I guess what I am aware of is, well, what I am aware of is I feel like they're very safe right now. They're very safe. They're being, so my sister is getting groceries. Obviously there's always, we don't know, but there's certainly a chance of the groceries have something on the surface of my sister. There, you know, there's no hundred percent safety if you're having any even ancillary contact with the outside world, but it seems like they're, they're good. And the thought of me going in there Uh, I would be a risk factor. So the way I would do it, I think I mentioned this would be to get an Airbnb for two weeks and just be completely isolated, maybe go out for walks, but literally not see anyone for two weeks and then come back, which seems like it would be totally safe, but I don't know. You know, what if, what if, what if somehow in the, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. You know, it just feels like, I mean, this is, again, if I follow that procedure, it feels like I've covered 100% of the basis. I don't see another person for two weeks, then I go see them. But what if? I mean, one what if I've been obsessively Googling is how long, assuming I'm carrying it asymptomatically, how long can I be potentially contagious for? You know, with symptomatic, you know, all right, I've gotten sick on this day. I'm going to wait two weeks and presumably you're out of the woods. But what if I, I, I don't know. I'm I'm even losing myself in the in these well, spirals right now. But the point is, course. they're safe right now. And yeah. if I introduce myself into their environment, it seems like they would be equally safe if I take all these precautions I've just outlined. Yeah. But it certainly wouldn't make them more safe. So yeah, why risk course, even that point oh 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 one percent that I give my parents coronavirus and fucking kill them?
0: Well, yeah, of course. And what kind of psychotherapist would I be if <laughs> we didn't also talk about you know the elephant in the room which is uh, which is the unconscious edible drive for you to infect your family kill your father so you can <laughs> marry your mother marry my mother right
1: <laughs> right oh I mean, that's, god
0: that's that's, that's you learn that in therapy school on
1: like day 2 right and i and i don't think that's operating at any level but my my th- but to be clear my father know? is the one yeah, <laughs> right in your professional opinion that's <laughs> yeah Well, it would certainly give us no shortage of material if that's how things went down.
0: So the last uh, but the but really the idea I had for you right now is kind of totally changing gears for my like depth, let's understand the unconscious motivations aspect and back to more of a psychedelic framework. When I sometimes when I'm really struggling with a decision, doing doing some intense breath work helps. To just get into an altered state of consciousness with breath. And sometimes from that place, like from the acute, like the Wim Hof method is the one that I do most frequently and some holotropic breath work too. And from the place of the really potent non-ordinary state of consciousness that you can open up with breath work or from the, the place of just deep somatic relaxation in my body that can come after, oftentimes a decision that I've been totally obsessing over will, will kind of make itself clear. So yeah, maybe, you know, that's one idea is maybe we get off the line here. We don't make the decision right now and you do some breath work and see what comes up.
1: Yeah. I, I like that idea. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that's a great suggestion. Um, Well, why don't I get to that? I think this is probably a good place to end up for today. We recorded far more than normal 50 minute therapy session, (laughs) but hopefully someone aside from our moms finds some value, therapeutic entertainment or otherwise from this. And yeah, I think once the next one I do there's yeah, there's a lot, probably deeper stuff involving this relationship with Clara. So we can, we can delve into that, but great talking to you, man
0: talking to you sounds like we're just getting started
1: yeah i'm excited i uh, terrified but also excited <laughs> all right <laughs>
0: okay good luck all right thanks Much yeah, love. have a good one love bye. you man talk to you soon bye